Like if I walk in and I tell you all the things you have to change, all the things you have to give up, all the risk you have to take, all the sacrifices you need to endure. You're just gonna get resistance. Like, yeah, why would I do that? Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. This is going to be the best podcast you've listened to all month. It's going to be a lot of valuable stuff here. We're going to take on a really important topic that I think is going to have a big impact on how you interact with the people you work with day to day. So we've got two guests today, Mike Kottmeyer, CEO of Leading Agile. Mike, thank you for being here. Happy to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. And Andrew Young, who's where the topic came from. Andrew's a senior consultant in Leading Agile. So Andrew, the first time on the podcast, thanks for being here. Thanks, Dave. And Dave, and, is it safe to say that this is the first time we've ever done this kind of dual interviewee format? It is, and we have no idea what's going to happen, but it's going to be awesome. Excellent. And, and if it's not, you're just going to edit the crap out of it and make it awesome for I us. I am only <laughs> going to say positive things about it because yeah. it's going to be awesome. Okay, there you go. I'm, 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 I'm all up for doing awesome. <laughs> all right. So, um, well, let's just start. Andrew, can you give a little bit of background on kind of where you come from? And then we'll have Mike do the same, even though everybody knows who he is. And then we'll get into the topic. Yeah, so I am a reformed designer turned product person that has always been kind of at that intersection of where business and user lies. Um, and my goal is always to build the right shit for the right people uh, in the best way possible. So that's kind of my lens of uh, I was a creator and then a questioner. And now I'm a doer. Okay. And Mike, what's your story? Well, well, so I, I, started, I started this company called Leading Agile eight years ago. And um, well, well, so what's interesting is that what's interesting about Andrew is that Andrew hasn't been with Leading Agile all that long. And like we've met face to face a couple of times, but, but this conversation spawned out of a question or a, or a line, maybe a line of inquiry um, when we were doing onboarding. Right, we were exploring some things. Andrew, yeah. you want to tell us what we were exploring? Well, hold on. Before you do that, oh. I want to tell them what onboarding is. Oh well, he didn't know what onboarding. Well, is. they don't know about our onboarding. So, okay, when people cool, join cool. Leading Agile. One of the challenges is it's not just a regular Agile consulting company. So, there's a lot that people have to get up to speed on in terms of our approach and our model. And rather than just dropping them in and hoping they figure it out, there is now a very focused approach on making sure that when people come on board, they're given all the tools and all the resources they need. And a lot of that is direct interaction with Mike and with Dennis and, and everybody else who leads Leading Agile. So that's where this conversation came from. Very cool. Yes. All right. Andrew, you're up. Yeah. So I had the wonderful benefit of going through that experience of spending four long Monday nights with Mike and Dennis on the phone, battling it out about how to educate us. Yeah, and what ended up happening... Right? Yeah. What ended up happening was we, we had this nice tension where we would watch a video and consume leading agile content. And then we would have a roundtable discussion and Mike would put us on the spot and call us out and let us give us, give us the opportunity to really defend our learning. And one night I jumped on, on the grenade and Mike had asked us to start defending how would we defend our business case with executives and senior leaders of companies that were, were our clients. And I jumped on, and started really going into the model and some of our methodology and talked about it. And after, after I was talking, Mike stopped and said, yes, Anne, that's beautiful and great. Nothing's wrong in that statement, but here's the thing. You lost the executive after about your 10th word. You started talking and everything you said was in this language of loss. 
and Mike said that, and I just, you know, jotted it down. Oh yeah, language of loss. And it didn't actually surprise me as Mike presented this idea to me that, that I spoke in a language of loss. Um, coming from a design background and coming from my background, I'm always taking things away from people uh, as a user, as a designer, asking people what they really need, trying to get to the need. So there was never a question from, from my point of view that Mike was like challenged me in a negative way. It was just this like framing that I had to go through. Yeah. So Mike was like, uh, focus on language of gain. And so I jotted this down and I went off to the, to the book into the interwebs to try and figure out what Mike really meant by this. Um, and so I've spent the last like three weeks trying to figure out what Mike meant by it. And when I actually asked him about it, he's like, yeah, I kind of made it up. <laughs> like most things, right? yeah. <laughs> well, well, it came from, it came from experience, right? So, so like what would happen is I can remember back in like my earliest days with version one and you know, it's like, as I was getting um, into the agile community in a more formal way and was, was reading the books and, and reading bloggers and listening to speakers and things like that. You know, a lot of times what people would, would talk about is they talk about, oh, well, the value prop of Agile is that, um, you, know, you know, we're going to limit work and process. We're going to focus on fewer things, you know, and, and, and that like sounds great, kind of, like as a delivery person, it sounds great. But the reality is, is that the person receiving that information is like, well, I kind of like to ask the team for lots of things. I don't want to only ask them for two things, right? Yeah, that I was the instance, Mike. It was, it was I said, I'm going to reduce their batch size. Yeah, exactly, right? It's a classic one. It's like, it's like I'm, I'm in charge. Like, why would I want to reduce batch size? You know? Yeah. Go, go so ahead, so I want to I want to try to frame some of this up too. So Andrew, you said from your design background, you're always trying to take things away to reduce just to the most important stuff. And I think for me as a project manager, Mike, I know you have some of this in your background too. Like I only care about broken things. I don't care about things that work. Like if I don't have to fix it, whatever, it's not part of my focus. But for an executive, you say, okay, yeah, you're going to have cross-functional teams. That means I have less people I'm in charge of. You're going to limit my batch size. I get less, less stuff. You know, it's supposed to be we're going to be more thoughtful, more focused. We're going to raise quality, all the positive things, but we're not used to talking about it that way. And so that creates this loss, this well, scarcity thing, well, right? So, so if you think about it from Andrew's point of view, what, he, what he's really saying is that, is that by focusing on less things – You'll get, you'll get actually more things through the system. By focusing on only what's essential, you'll actually deliver the highest value things to market. Okay? But as agilists, a lot of times, we don't, we don't often use those words. The other thing that's, that's interesting, and this was really up underneath, because what we were doing is, is if anybody hits our website and downloads the transformation white paper or any of the video clips from Agile 2018 last year, Right, you, we we did this um, we did this whole presentation on our framework, and that's and that's the context that we use for for onboarding. And the first section of that is like around the business case, and 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 so here's the interesting thing, is that is that is that yes, if I focus on the smallest things, I get more things through. Right, if I focus on fewer things, I get more things through. But when you're dealing with that executive. The executive is used to saying, this is what I want. And here's the other side. The team is accustomed to saying yes. And so what ends up happening in practice is that there's this plausible deniability where the executive asks for something. 
the team says yes, they'll do it. And then oftentimes everybody's moved on or there's a different regime or, or something's happened on the backside and nobody's actually accountable. So one of the things that I've asked people a lot um, in the sales cycle and early consulting engagements is, is it safer in your organization to say yes and to fail? Or is it safer to say no and to be successful? You'd be blown away at the number of organizations where it's safer to say yes and to fail than it is to say no and to deliver what you say you will. This is a massive, deep cultural issue, though. And it goes back to that whole, like, language is a virus thing. The way that we talk about stuff affects everything that we do. Well, well what you have to understand is the social contracts that are going on in that organization at any given time, right? And you have to understand, you know, how people get rewarded in, in, the, in the process. And, you know, I worked one of the earliest companies I consulted for as a year one um, consulting engagement. Um, the, the pattern was, is they didn't know how much money they were going to have until they knew how hot it was going to be in the summer utility. Right. And so they had to spin up all of the projects in the fall. And if somebody had money, then they had to start the project. And so like, I kind of walk in and go, well, Hey, why don't we focus on like the fewer highest priority ones, do the simplest thing possible. And the guy's like, no, I, I mean, I, if, if they have money, I have to start politically. He couldn't say no. Yeah. Right. Fascinating, right? So when you were just saying all that, I just started thinking about the way that a lot of these executives come to the topic. And if you think about the title of Jeff's last book, Twice the Work and Half the Time. Oh, Jeff they, Sutherland. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Um, you know, yeah. Jeff Sutherland. They yeah. come to Agile with an expectation of gain. I'm going to get more, I'm going to get faster, I can have everything I want, I can change my mind all the time. So they come to with this perception of abundance, and then we come in, and I mean, I would do the same thing Andrew did. I would be like, all right, yeah, you can have all that, but your life's going to suck while you get it until you toenails fall out and can't have Fritos anymore, and then you can have 0% body fat, and you get stuff every two weeks. But so, so I appreciate the inside joke. I don't think we can get out of all of explaining your reference. There. No, I don't want to. But but yeah. we we try to tamp that down. And I guess the question I have for you is, is, you know, for somebody like like Andrew or somebody like me, we know that when we walk in, our job is to pump the brakes a little bit and say, yeah, all those things that you read in Harvard Business Review, you can have them. But this is how it works, and we've got to bring them back to reality. But how do we do that without talking about things? and giving this perception of us increasing scarcity? Well, so, okay, so, so I, I want to answer your question, and then I want to see if we can loop Andrew back in, because you and I have such history and such dynamic interactions, I think we're going to leave Andrew out. So, um, so here's the interesting thing, right? So, so typically when I craft a story, it, you, you eventually have to get to the point of what trade-offs are going to make to optimize their outcomes, right? right? And, and so usually what I start with is, is building a bit of empathy. And I go, you know... Um, I understand you have a business need to get everything you asked for when you asked for it, right? And I'm oversimplifying, of course, right? But we all know we, we, want, we want to put 10 pounds in a five-pound bag kind of a thing. Um, but let's, like, let's just talk about the physics of delivery. And, and where we start the argument is we go, we go the, the perception is, right? The perception of the organization is that they're overloaded. The executive says, but yeah, they say yes to everything. And I'm kind of like, well, the problem is they don't know 
exactly what they can say yes to. And it's not politically safe to say um, no to you. So, so let's, like, let's just hypothetical situation. If we could measure, um, um, if we could measure the capacity of the team and we knew rather unambiguously what they were capable of producing, would that be a good thing? Yeah, I would love to know what they're capable of producing. Um, can we agree that if we knew what they could produce, that it would probably be in our best interest to throttle the, um, the demand on that team to what they were proven to produce? Yes, I can absolutely see that. And then you just kind of go, it's just kind of inarguable, right? If, if I know the capacity of the team, I can only ask them to do the things that they're doing, right? That they can do, right, within that capacity. And, and so, like, a lot of times, like, what I find myself doing, and this is, like, just stuff as I've learned how to get into my head on this stuff, is you bring it down to, like, inarguable, like, physics, like the physics of project management, right? Time, cost, and scope. You fix time and cost, you've got a very scope kind of a thing, right? So you bring it down, you reduce it to an inarguable kind of a thing. And then we say, and then so the, the challenge is it's not reduce work and process. It's not build small, minimally marketable features that are less robust than what I want them to be. It's, look, we're going to give you the ability to know the capacity of the team. The physics of delivery is that capacity can't, or demand can't exceed capacity. So knowing that demand can't exceed capacity, that's physics, right? We all understand that. Then what we have to do is that we're going to teach you how to exploit the capacity of the team to your economic advantage. I think that was an important phrase. Exploit, say that again, exploit, exploit the, the capacity of the team to your economic advantage. Okay. So here's the thing, right? So something they don't have today, they don't actually know what the team can produce. So what we know is that by giving a team a clear backlog, stabilizing the team, breaking dependencies, um, creating the ability to produce a working testing increment at the end of every sprint, we know that we can stabilize the throughput of the team. If you like story points, you can use story points. If you want some other metric, use some other metric, right? But we know that we can roughly stabilize the throughput of the team doing that, right? That's the whole team's backlogs working testing software thing. So look, right now you don't know the capacity of the team. So what I'm going to give you is knowledge of the capacity of the team. And then I'm going to reference what should be inarguable, that if you actually knew the capacity of the team, demand can't exceed capacity. So that's inarguable, right? We don't have to debate that. Um, and then what I'm going to give you is the ability to exploit that capacity to your economic advantage. I'm gonna teach you how to put the most valuable things in the system so that you can make the most money on the backside. Okay. Does that make sense? It makes sense and I have a bunch of stuff, but I wanna give Andrew a chance and, to, and to chime in. Thing. I didn't tell them that they had to do without features. I didn't tell them that they had to limit work and process. Right. But the reality is, is because of the physics of capacity and demand, they're going to have to do some of that. But the language that you use is I'm going to teach you how to exploit the limited capacity of the team now that you know it to make the most money possible. Okay. Right. And it's, it's the same stuff, right? It's a lot of it's marketing, right? It's how you package it. It's framing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, I was going to lean into that. Let me oversimplify it. Yeah. Then, like, 
what you're just telling us to do, and, and I buy it, is this idea of know your audience, sell your story to that audience, and know that the story is going to have to change for everybody you talk to. So in the same story, um, I keep on hearing this reference up to an executive. How does language of loss or language of gain map down to a portfolio tier or to a program tier or to even the delivery tier? If I want to tell that same story, that language of gain is going to change. So I have to have what, well, two, three, four stories of the exact yeah, same story to yeah. make sure everybody gets their gain. So how do you talk to how do you talk to Agile to a project manager? Okay, so a project manager's worldview, um, at least historically, I haven't been in the project management game in a while, right? But they're building, they're running around and you know, they're getting requirements from people and they're getting estimates on the requirements and people are doing design and they're building Gantt charts and creating schedules and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm assuming the project management game hasn't changed a whole lot over the last, you know, 10 years. And so, and so they're doing that, right? And so project managers typically, um, and this is oversimplistic, and I mean no disrespect to project managers, but it's like what they're typically doing is they're running around asking people how they're making progress on their their tasks in the plan because what a project manager ultimately wants to be able to do is say we're on we're on schedule we're on budget right whatever okay and so that's how they've typically been rewarded right and then we do status reports with issues and risks and, and all that kind of stuff right and they get rewarded for collecting data about the project and reporting out data on the project now, I would argue that the really good project managers are able to exert some influence and, and help people create better plans and hold to those plans better. But project management is kind of a mixed bag from a practitioner's perspective. Okay, so we walk in as um, agilists and we say, there's no such thing as a project manager in Scrum. You know, your, your role has been split up. The team has part of it. The Scrum master has part of it. The product owner has part of it. So, you know, you don't have a job. Okay. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to give you status reports anymore and let you know where the team's at because you know what? You don't need those. You just need to come into the team room and, and just look at the burn down charts. Okay. And, um, oh yeah, by the way, we're not going to help you build Gantt charts anymore because we're going to build user stories. And nobody reports to you anymore. And nobody, well, nobody really reported you to begin with. But they thought that they did. Right. But yeah, right. And then, yeah. So, so we basically have just emasculated the, um, the, the project management community in the process. So if I'm a project manager, why would I want to, to do Agile, right? Because I've just taken away everything that you need to do to be able to do your job. Can't have a Gantt chart, not giving you status reports. You can walk into the team room if you want, but we're not gonna really acknowledge you because you don't have a role. Oh, and by the way, we're, we, we're actually probably gonna go kill the PMO and kill the project management organization, right? That's our, that's our real end game. So, so what I would say is I go, okay, so, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about your challenges as a project manager. How often have you walked in and had a developer tell you they were 90% done and there was only one week left, but, but eight weeks later, they were still not finished? Happens all the time, right? So, so how many times have you walked into um, a readout with your leadership team and given them a status report one week and said everything was green and then the next week had to walk in and say everything was red because the developers were building up a bunch of defects that, um, that they weren't logging and they didn't, and the work reflected didn't show up in your project plan. And, um, and so therefore, you know, you had this indeterminate batch of work that wasn't available to you. And we didn't even know that until the last possible minute we couldn't release, right? Project managers live in that world. 
right? And the good ones, like I said, get out in front of it and can help manage it. The, the ones that, that aren't as solid, right? Maybe more junior, right? They're just totally at the mercy of what the team tells them, okay? And so, so I'm sitting here project manager, just like, what's the value prop to Agile to me? All you've done is tell me the things that I don't get in Agile anymore. You haven't given me anything about how to be more successful. So, so what happens is you say, okay, so you meet the, you meet the project manager where they are. You ever had this problem? Ever had that problem? Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever had a developer actually lie to you? Maybe not on purpose, right? But just because they didn't know or because they didn't get the question you were asking or whatever. Happens all the time. Well, so let me tell you like how Agile works, right? Teams, backlogs, working test software. We have this dedicated group of people. We have this estimated backlog. We have the ability to produce working tested defect-free software at the end of every sprint. We know the velocity of the team. If we know the velocity of the team relative to the size of the backlog, we can start to anticipate um, uh, we can start to anticipate scope and duration. So from the burndown charts, you get to see every single day, or at least every single sprint, how the team is progressing, not in some um, kind of amorphous, yeah, I think I'm about 90% done with this task kind of way, but with the actual features of the software. So you can go to your leadership team and say that we have measurable proof that the, that the team is 50% of the way through the backlog and has 50% left to go, but we've burned 75% of the dollars. So, so we are in effect, you know, running behind our cost schedule, right? Back in the day when I was working for a check free, we could out project manage the project managers using agile and give them better schedule variance and better cost variance than the traditional project managers could do. Can I, can I jump yeah. in? Cause I want to see how, cause I have, I'm thinking of my own answers to this and I want to yeah. see if, how you, what your, both of you, how both of you respond to this. So I'm thinking as a project manager, if I'm trying to sell, explain this stuff to them through a language of gain, um, what I would be thinking about is we're going to give you the opportunity to have a better understanding of what's actually happening. Well, we're going to give you the opportunity to actually be responsible for less by giving the information that executives need so they can make choices about what they need to see delivered by the organization. And you will have the time to focus on the team and help them get better at delivering on that stuff. Well, maybe, maybe not, right? It depends upon what the needs of that particular project manager are. So like in my head, I'm referencing an actual conversation that happened 10 years ago. Okay. So I walked through this with this, this particular lady and she's like, the developers don't have any place to hide. And I'm like, yeah. Now, maybe that's not popular in the Agile community, but, but seriously, if you think about it, if I know the size of my backlog and I've got stories that are broken down the right way, estimated, right? Yeah, I yeah. The velocity of the team, I get to a defect-free piece of code at the end of a sprint, right? If I achieve that, nobody can hide, right? Everything is super transparent. But isn't this also part of the cultural transformation, the way that we wordsmith, the way we express it. She says the developers have no place to hide. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I want to say that in a way that's less like, well, you know, well, the yeah, right? shiftless so, little lazy developers. Well, everybody has an angle, right? Right. And so when we're out trying to operate as change agents within an organization, you know, whether it be on the front side trying to sell a deal or whether it be trying to influence the enterprise transformation office or whether it be 
trying to work with the project manager who's down in the trenches working with the teams, right? Everybody's got an angle and everybody's got a pain point. And, and we, I, and again, just my experience and in and, and this experience, there's some risk that it could be aging, but a lot of the language I hear is like, is like what you can't do anymore. And for a project manager, there's a huge upside, huge amount of visibility and transparency. They can do their job more effectively on yeah. that than an agile transformation. Mm -hmm. So don't tell me what I don't get. Right. Tell me how I can do my job better. Yeah, you can track work in real time now, which you couldn't do before. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah, I keep oversimplifying it in my head to, to now it's not about language of loss or language of gain. While that is an outcome here, uh, it's about how I'm going to kick off the conversation through what lens to what consumer. It's about knowing the conditions of conversation I need to be having with whom. And this is the springboard of it so I can have the conversation or the agency to have the conversation. And then we can talk about all the things that are going to come out of it or we have to take away or the laws of physics as you just identified, Mike. Yeah. Well, like, I'll, give you, I'll give you another example. Like we can bop up and down the, the levels of the organization. Uh, and I'm speaking to the agile coaches that might be listening to this. So how many times have, as an agile coach have you walked into a team or into a room full of leaders and said, you need to empower your teams? You need to stop being command and control, right? We say it all the time, right? That's common language, right? Um, you need to change your mindset. And I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm in charge. I don't have to change my mindset. These people have to do what I say, right? If they don't perform, I'm going to be command and control. What's the value prop for me, right, in doing it? Mike, is, is, yeah. is that right there, change your mindset? Is that a... Would you define that as a language of loss? Because when I just heard you say that, like I just like yeah. can step in like, I don't want to do that. Well, you, yeah, it's a language of loss, right? Because if you think about it, right, you're telling me as a leader that my behaviors are bad and that I need to give up my behaviors and, and adopt new behaviors that are unproven to me. Mike, right? do you have any correlation between scarcity and language of loss and language of gain? You know, I, I haven't necessarily thought about it through that lens, but here's another interesting, so if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, you mean if the person receiving the message is viewing it from a lens of scarcity? Uh, yeah, and scarcity being taken awayness there. Well, well yeah, right, but, but you think about it. If you, if you think about it, um, people in, say, I mean, these are all human beings that we're looking to influence. They're human beings. And they have had long careers, successful careers, without you being there. And they've had long careers um, without operating in an agile way. And they've gotten into the position that they're in because they've had a ton of success. And, and a lot of times when people um, are in a position of comfort, right, um, you know, it's kind of like, is, is there a burning, are they moving towards something or away from something? A lot of times, um, you know, people might respond to pain, but they're not experiencing pain necessarily, not as according to their world, might be somebody else's pain. And, and so, like, I don't know if it's a scarcity mindset or not, but regardless, I can't walk in and say, yeah, you, you need to have, you need to adopt a growth mindset because a scarcity mindset's not working for you. So well, you're not avoiding rocking the boat in, it, in either version. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of motivations people have. And, and a lot of times, you know, 
people, you know, one story I tell live a lot is around, you know, middle managers that are in like situations like, you know, when I was kind of a middle manager, I had a stay at home wife and I had three little boys. I had mortgage payment, a couple car payments, um, you know, didn't have a ton of money saved. So it was like, you know, I might be a bad decision or two away from not being able to support my family. And, and so when we walk in as Agilists and we say, you're doing something wrong, you need to correct this behavior, it's threatening. So do you or have you gone in and said, look, I want to talk about this stuff, but I want to talk about it in terms of loss and gain. I want to make sure what, sure what you're hearing is gain and not just what we're taking no, away. I just make it a point. I just make it a point. Like I don't try to, con well, okay. So that's an in interesting angle. So I could walk in and, and use a language of loss and try to convince you it's a language of gain. No, no. I mean, explicitly saying, look, I'm, there's ways we can talk about this where you're going to hear I'm taking stuff away. I want you to hear what you're getting. I don't want, I don't want to use, so I, I personally believe, especially when you're on the front side of a transformation, and, and actually I'm going to modify that, all the way into the depths of the transformation, because whether, whether a consultancy or an organization has been at this for years, or whether it's, it's new to somebody, and I don't think there is any reason to use takeaway language with people. I think it's okay. off-putting. Right. It's just off putting because because, again, most of the time, you know, so, you know, you look at like the different value props that are running around the organization. The classic the classic battle is is I get asked this question every time I speak. How do I get the business and IT to talk? Right. Well, so so IT wants a certain set of things and the business wants a certain set of things. And if I have to walk into the business and say, look, you need to stop behaving A, B, C, and D. You need to stop asking for this. You need to empower the team. You need to do this. You need to do whatever, right? I'm sitting there as a, as a product person on the business side going, how am I going to run, how am I going to run my p and <laughs> Yeah. Right? You, how am I going to get my bonus? To, you're trying to take away all the hooks that I used to use to try to get what I needed out of these guys. Oh, and now, by the way, you're telling me to trust this group of people and to empower this group of people that has no track record of actually delivering anything I've ever asked them to do. Yeah. That's a little harsh. I don't want anybody to get offended. But I am telling you, I've walked into companies where they're like, we are spending $40 million a year on this development organization. I have no idea what they're producing. But you have to spend it no or you joke. won't get it next year. No joke, right? Yeah. But here's the thing, right? So then you go talk to the development team and they're basically like, yeah, the development team or the product team's changing their mind all the time. They can't focus on a strategy. They, you know, they're, they're constantly injecting new work into the system, right? And so the whole system is just absolutely thrashing. And how do you go get a group of people that have historically not trusted each other or not worked well together to, to begin trusting each other. And the bargain, the bargain is almost always something like this. I need to get the delivery organization into a place that can make and meet commitments on some horizon, right? Doesn't yeah. have three to five years out, but three months at a pop, six months at a pop. I've got to get the, I've got to get the team to where it can, or the organization to where it can make and meet commitments. 
I've got to get it to a point where it can, it can establish a, a capacity indicator that's reliable, that they believe in. Right? So all of the team's backlogs, working tests, and software stuff came out of how do I stabilize the capacity side of the equation? And then you've got to go to the business side and go, look, I get that these guys have not historically been able to make and meet commitments, but let me tell you what we're doing to remedy that so you can have a trusted partner, right? Because I want you to have a trusted partner, language of game, right? So I want to go someplace weird and see how you guys respond to this. And, and Andrew, I'm curious about what you think about this from a design perspective. So, Mike, you're talking about all this stuff, and I'm thinking about the fact that I, as a project manager, I know that when I'm in a room full of Agile people, I have to wait a couple seconds for the filters to click in before I open my mouth. And yeah. now, if I'm doing this, I've got to wait for a few more filters to click in, so I try to speak in the language of gain. And I'm wondering if you can almost prep the the recipient let's say the, the customer whoever we're doing the work for start to coach them to think about gain in the same way that you know if, if you're and i'm gonna this is a big jump so christopher avery is going to tell you you have to record your wins right that's a habit you have to get into to acknowledge those wins can you teach the people that are going through transformation to start to see things through a lens and a filter of gain as opposed to a filter of loss. If I say three to nine people, are they going to first hear, shit, I got to cut my team down by a third, but then here I'm going to have a smaller, more focused team. And it's just, they have to frame it for themselves as well. I mean, is that part of, should that be part of our transformation work? So, so the question I would ask you, Dave, is, is who is, um, or, like, like a team of six to eight people, or what did you say, three to nine? Three to nine. Like, three to nine is what it's supposed to be now. So three to nine, okay. So, um, so who's a team of three to nine a win for? For the, well, other than Schwaber. Um, potentially, okay. So if it is a small group of people and they are cross-functional and self-organized and yep. they have what they need, they mm -hmm. should be able to, it should be a win for them if they can deliver stuff and get that satisfaction. Okay. Maybe, but maybe. the team has, but the, that organization has no track record of yeah. making any commitments. Yeah. So, so then it's not necessarily a win for anybody. I'm just trying to think about how would I find the win. Right. So, so the win is, right, so why would we create a team of three to nine people, right? Well, we, we know, right, because um, communication patterns are more effective and that people can know what everybody's doing and that the team can swarm around the work and they can self-organize effectively and, you know, the whole two pizza team kind of a deal, right? Yeah. And so we know that. Right, and that's why we want to do it. But the reality is, the only reason you create a dedicated cross-functional team that operates the way a Scrum team does is so that that team can stabilize velocity. It's the only reason. It's the only reason. Okay. Because anytime a team doesn't have anything it needs to deliver, it has an external dependency, and that destabilizes velocity. And I don't care whether you're using T-shirt sizes or you're reducing everything to a single point, or you're just counting user stories, or you're trying to do story points or in velocity, like it doesn't matter, right? There's throughput's throughput. And we want stable throughput for okay. the most part, okay? And there's exceptions to the rule, but we want stable throughput. Okay. And so the only reason you would 
ever you would ever create a team like that is to stabilize velocity. Okay. Why, so, why, who would care about stabilizing velocity? Well, I'm thinking why? about this on too many levels yeah. at once. So you yeah. just framed that up so that now in my brain, the only way I can think through this problem is to find my path back to it's about stable velocity. I can't even go outside of those lines when in my thought process right now. So I'm thinking this yeah. is the same as this is, it's just social engineering. Think about it in terms of gain, not loss. And then everything becomes, okay, how do I see this in gain? It, it, so, so here's my take, right? Um, nobody wants to lose. Nobody. Right? Nobody's thinking about loss. When they hear it, they're always reframing it yeah. already. What am I getting out of this? People are naturally doing this. And so we're, we're, we're hyper-focused on talking about the delivery side, not on the receiving side. People are already in the language of gain, reframing it for themselves and what do I get out of something? And I think a big part of it is, is because as delivery people, right, people on the delivery side, we're focused on delivering more effectively, okay? And, and the reality is, in a lot of the companies that we work for, the, the product people, it's like, it's like, yes, at the end of the day, they're more successful if we deliver stuff, but they, they might actually be able to sell work based upon promises or commitments. They might be able, it might be a short-term play, right? But maybe they're rewarded in a short-term way. You know, so, so understanding what a win is for that person, I, I think is, it, it feels like physics to me. It feels like, in, like it's inarguable. Like if I walk in and I tell you all the things you have to change, all the things you have to give up, all the risk you have to take, all the sacrifices you need to endure. You're just going to get resistance. Like, yeah, why would I do that? Right? So yeah. I had this one lady at, at this one client, and um, I'm, I'm friends with that customer, and he'll probably recognize this story if he, if he listens to the podcast. And, uh, and they had this, this product lady, senior vice president of such and such, and, and she was this out making promises to customers and you know and she was she was rewarded socially she was rewarded economically her customers liked her right she got to say yes to everybody she never had to say no to anybody and then she would just come in and she would just heap work onto the the delivery organization <laughs> you're going and, back to that trust influence loop well, well yeah and and so i i told her i said look i said i said stop Stop asking this team to make and meet commitments because all they're going to do is lie to you, right? And maybe I'm breaking my own rule here, but it's like, it's like what I had to basically tell her is that they're lying to you and you are going to fail in front of your clients and you can blame them all day long, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to take that arrow on the backside. Now I'm probably like violating my own rules, so I'm gonna have to like think about this a little bit, right? <laughs> but what I was, but what, where I, I think I, my brain was going when I started telling the stories, I said, so here's the deal. We have to get the organization to a place where it can make and meet commitments, right? It has to be able to, it has to be able to make you promises it can keep. And it is not in a position to make you promises it can keep. So you're gonna continue to overload the organization, you're gonna continue to take errors, you're gonna continue to underperform until we can get this fixed. And she's like, how long is it going to take? And I said, three months. And she goes, shoot me now. And I went, <laughs> but that's, what, that's what it's going to take, right? 
you know, but well, she'd gain an arrow. What is that? She'd gain an arrow. Well, yeah, right. So, so there was a little bit of there was a little bit of convincing her, right? And and again, right, there's different strategies depending on different people. You know, if you can if you can create a win for somebody by taking away their pain, right? And so the the deal I was making with her was I was said, look, you're experiencing all this pain. It's because the team can't make any commitments. So we have to fix that so you can stop experiencing pain. And that's going to require you in the short run to give up a little something, right? So breaking my rule there, but it's situational so that you can gain an even bigger thing. So, yeah. so maybe there's an opportunity to use a little bit of language of loss at times, but she was a particularly difficult. Well, um, or a language of trade because she's not, well, she's trading it. Short term loss. But it's still, yeah. it's still a language of gain, right? And this was my other question for Mike is, okay. When we have this idea of language of loss, it's the loss of good, not the loss of bad. A loss of bad is just like a double negative where it's a language of gain again. So when you're taking something negative away, it's not about the actual words we're using. At times it might be, but it's that outcome, right? And so that situational example you just used of taking something negative away, I just call that a language of gain. Well, yeah, but what I had to do is I had to convince her because here, like I said, this is the really fascinating thing. If, if I am rewarded by creating massive requirement stocks that can never be delivered, and, and, I, and I'm able to build social capital by undermining development organization and talking about how awful they are and getting the CTO fired, right? That's, that's an incredibly toxic situation, right? And, and I think if we were all able to take a step back, we'd realize that that's not good for anybody in the long run. But if somebody's reward system is, is centered around saying yes and casting blame and being able to make yourself superior, right? This is where we get into the whole culture thing, right? So like, like how can you change that culture? Because that's an absolutely toxic culture. And we all get that it doesn't work. But, but how I want to fix that culture goes back to the structure practices, culture stuff we talked about. I want to create complete cross-functional teams that are able to make um, capacity commitments. And I want to teach the organization how to exploit that capacity for its economic gain. I'm going to put a rule system around it to where everybody has their expectations managed. And I want to change that person's behavior by showing them by actual delivery that there's a better way to do it. Telling her to be not toxic or him not to be not toxic. <laughs> Is, is I mean that's how they're reward, they're rewarded today for being toxic. So we want to create an alternative reward system, right? That enables that person to engage with the delivery organization in a more healthy way. And to me, you know, candidly, this is this is the art of consulting, right? It's the art of influence. Well, it's yeah, it's social engineering. I mean, all the way around. You're talking about what is their win, like what are they everything is what what do you get? What is your benefit? How do you incentivize this? It's all you're gonna get it's, stuff it's and, and interesting thing, right? So so we've talked about the trust influence loop before and, and maybe you can put a link to that that model yeah. podcast or something because I don't want to go into it. But this is this is all language of influence. Right, having empathy for somebody, establishing a point of view that resonates and creates safety. Right now, here's the interesting thing: if you come in and execute, you've sold that vision, you've used the language of gain, you've developed empathy, you've created safety for that person. 
right? And then you fail to stabilize velocity. Because yeah, you lose everything. Yeah. Right? You lose everything. And that's where that's where we're at in the agile community a lot because because agile's gotten so popular, it's it it was it's very influential and people want the advantages of it. But then they don't actually execute the team's backlogs, working cuts, and software. They don't get the structure, governance, and metrics right. They don't deal with the structure, practices, and culture elements in an effective way. And the organization underperforms. And then all these promises that you made on the other side about the benefits of Agile start to wear thin. Yeah. And there's been a lot of articles, a couple of articles I've read recently. It's talking about, you know, one I read in particular, I think it was on LinkedIn, that was like, why developers hate Agile. And like everything in the article, I'm just like, that's just not the way it's supposed to work. It's not what's supposed to work. That's not, <laughs> it's just not the way it's supposed to be, right? So yeah, I would hate Agile too if it was <laughs> talking about it being implemented, right? Yeah. But yeah, man. There's a lot okay. to this. So I want to, I want to, what? No, it's just crazy. I agree with you. It is. And it's a really deep topic. So I think we yeah. should wrap it up in a minute. But Andrew, do you have, since this is, you're the one that originated the conversation. Yeah. Do you have any parting thoughts or a parting question on this before I get to the weird question? <laughs> yeah, I want to know how much Mike turns this on and off. You just led us with that nugget of like, this is part of consulting. This is the magic of consulting or a magic of a good consultant, possibly. Yeah. Mike, do you turn this on and off? Are you aware of when you're doing this or do you do this at home with the kids? <laughs> like, is this just we a need to get ball? Kimmy like, on the podcast. Go get he Kimmy. Just, you just. <laughs> opened up a whole can of worms i'm like so so this is my catch 22 at home and i'll, I'll just share a personal note so if i try to consult at home kimmy has on more than one occasion told me i am not a client do not be my consultant right? <laughs> so so i have to be really careful like what little techniques that that i use and and if, if she sniffs that i'm trying to be a consultant and solve her problems like that's no go in my house um but i would suggest right walking in and using language of loss um you know I, I think there's probably something there that's probably just good human practice kind of stuff yeah um you know man but it's like it's really interesting is i've become really self-aware right not only is we built leading agile to solve these class of problems but is the consulting methodologies and the the transformation system transformation stuff becomes more explicit um you know what what it what it's really forcing me and and Dennis and a few others to really do is to get up underneath like why what we've done in the past works. And so, you know, just through years of talking about it, years of writing, tons of examples, um, making mistakes, you know, pissing people off. Like I mean, I piss people off sometimes. It's hard to believe, but I know I do sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, you step in a mess every so often, you're like, oh man, it's because I use language of loss or something like that. And it just becomes kind of part of how you think. And so, and so what, to answer your question more directly, I do recognize when I am in situations with clients, I'm self-aware of certain techniques, but it's only because I've had to think about it so explicitly in order to teach other people. And so like, I'm aware of some of the tools that I use. Um, and, and I have to like kind of rationalize that because, because to some degree, it, it, it almost feels like it could be manipulative. And, and I don't mean it to be, it, but it is for the common good, right? Like, it, I, I don't know that it's manipulative to be kind to people to build a deeper relationship, right? You know, so it's, 
so it's 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 a it's an interesting thing. But I'm I guess maybe the answer to your question is I'm self aware. I think the word manipulative gets a bad rap. I think yeah, it sure does. We 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 all manipulate people. I mean, you do it with you do it with design. You do it with project management. You do it with software, but it, well, so it's intention. Influence is the stronger word, right? Better word, yeah, so or it has less baggage to it, but yeah, it's, well, it's influence. Like said, the influence side, right, is if somebody's giving me access to talk to them, I have permission to have a conversation. Yeah. Right? I want to create shared understanding, right? I want to create empathy. Right. And then communicate my point of view in a way that resonates with them and creates safety. Right. And so I am absolutely as a tool of influence trying to create safety for somebody because I'm, I'm trying to influence them to help. Right. It's yeah. not manipulate them for for my economic gain. It's like it's an exchange of value. Of course, we want to get paid, but we want to help. And and if we're not helping, then, then the getting paid part ends very quickly. Right. Yeah. And, so, and so there's a win win situation that we want to create there. And if I can walk in with this language of gain and help people really clearly understand how they win as a result of doing this, then then oftentimes I can get them to participate. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So what's your weird question, Brad? Okay, this is Andrew, you have to go along with this because you're on this interview. I try to ask Mike right. strange questions at the end. And this actually comes from the interview I did with Brandon the other day. Okay. Um, and it might work and it might not, but we were talking about parallels between working with clients and, and Brandon doing the mixed martial arts stuff. Oh, fascinating. Okay. And what I was trying to do is when I was learning about project management, one of the things I started to study was high performance athletes and, and specifically yeah. with baseball pitchers. Like in that moment, when you're on the top of the mound, there's all those people in the stadium screaming, all that pressure. These guys are like in their early twenties. Like, what do you do? to to find your spot like just to just chill out and find the breath and do what you have to do how do you not get so swept away with everything going on and and he talked about how a lot of fights it just it turns into this like scrappy thing because everybody forgets what they're supposed to be doing so my yeah. question for both of you is when you find yourself in those situations um you know work related situations like what do, what do you do to recenter and kind of catch yourself and say okay this is what's going on. This is where I am. Or like, how do you orient yourself and figure out what the right path to take is? Do you have any techniques for that? So Andrew, you go ahead and go first if you're, if you're up for it. Yeah, I've got a weird one. Um, and it's something that I, I've been told my whole life that I talk quickly. Um, and I don't create enough pauses when I talk. And so I find myself getting really anxious in those moments. And I've learned that I have to um, wiggle my, all of my toes and that's the amount of time <laughs> I need to process and recenter myself. So if I can wiggle my big toe, my second, third, fourth, fifth toe, by the time I'm there, I'm, I'm back to that breath I need and I've got that cadence back to where I need to be. That's hey, brilliant, weird. man. Andrew, could you slow down? I didn't understand that. That was, that was awesome. Good job, dude. <laughs> I, I kept it weird. That was great. Wow, so so you outweirded me, man. I, I don't know that I can um I don't know that I can I can I can compete with that. Um, you know, it's really funny when you were when you brought up Brandon mixed martial arts thing. Um I've been I've been studying judo for the last three or four months. I think we talked about that on the last podcast. And this might be a topic for a different day, but like or maybe we talked about it last time. I see tons of parallels between yeah strategy and consulting strategy in terms of like how to think about problems, how to break down problems. Passing the energy back and awesome. forth. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
And so, so within, um, I'm actually becoming, um, competence, not the right word, but I can like walk in and kind of spar with somebody without feeling like totally lost at this point. And, um, and so I haven't mastered, um, the ability to stay calm in, in that moment. Um, one of the, the thing that I probably do the most in like a professional environment is, is, um, is I, I, I don't know if this is the right, is this is the answer to your question, but like, I'm really clear on what I want the outcome of a meeting to be, like yeah. what the objective is. Um, we actually will often, Dennis and I will talk about scripting the first five minutes, right? Okay. We want to have an idea of what we're going to walk into the room and how we're going to orchestrate that first few minutes of the meeting. And, and then a lot of it is navigating the conversation to stay on message. So you don't get like trapped in this, into a conversation that's really off point. Yeah. You know, so, and, and, and that's not like a technique, right? That's, that's no, just, but that script would be the thing that helps you realize, Oh shit, look where we are. We've got to tie this back to the dock and figure out what we're doing. Yeah. And, and just the, the ability to, the ability to kind of stay focused on, you know, how it's going to start, how you think it's going to run, what you're trying to achieve. And, and there's a lot of dodging and weaving in there, but but staying on script, trying not to answer questions that you don't know the answer to. And candidly, a lot of times that, that they gets into a place of where, you know, people sometimes it's, it's I guess I'm crazy. But people sometimes ask the wrong questions Yeah. and, and getting them centered on the right questions or getting agreement on what the right questions are. Right. I mean, that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I manage, um, you know, stuff when I'm, you know, with a client. Okay. This is great. I, yeah, yeah this, these are both great answers. This is good stuff. You know where I, th- you know where I thought you were going to go with? I thought you were going to give me an opportunity to talk about like how I stayed calm when I was playing Collective Soul that time. Well, that's, that's actually a great example. So how did you do that? Yeah. Because that, that's a perfect example practice, of... Practice like crazy, right? That's a lot. That's where all this... That even I can tie this back into leading out. It's it's, and that's going back to the script thing too. It's just yeah. for well, you, like, it's over and I over people to do although i'm a bit of a hypocrite as of late is is to write because when you write it gets your thoughts clear Mm -hmm. Um, and then you can be very intentional about how you think and when you write and you think clearly it enables you to communicate with other people clearly okay and um and so and so to me that's like practice like almost everything that i said in this meeting uh in this meeting in this podcast was was written in in a blog Right. Or it was probably said live 50 times. You know, okay. it's, I'm, I'm weaving a narrative from like little components of things yeah. that I've been talking about for 10, 15 years. And, and that's why, that's why these ideas are like so present for me. So, so when I played with collective soul, it was like, it was like practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Practice. And I asked you how many times you did that solo. And- oh, hundreds, hundreds, yeah. even thousands, maybe. And, and it was, and, but what was cool about it, and this is the reason why I thought that it might be applicable is that, is that I was totally prepared to play that song, even if I had blacked out on stage, like, I mean, literally like I could have played it from muscle memory, Um, but I practiced it so much. I was fully present in the moment. And when, when you know, when you're very confident in the story you want to tell and how you're going to tell it, it enables you to be very present and very calm. And that's what my judo instructor, jiu-jitsu instructor is telling me will happen in jiu-jitsu eventually is you'll get to a point where your repertoire of stuff is so solid. Even when you're losing, 
you'll be in the moment and you can understand why you were losing yeah. or understand why you were winning. You know, nothing catches you off guard. Right. But, it, but it's preparation and practice for me. Yeah. I, you know, Andrew, to your thing about the toes, I find that after having taught the stuff that I teach for so long, I more, it would be more like normal for me to realize, Oh my shit, I've been wiggling my toes for like 10 minutes. I must be really like off the rails. And, and I realized that all the defense, all the like recovery mechanisms have kicked in already before I even realize what's happened. So this was great stuff, guys. Thank you for doing this. You're very welcome. Long podcast though. Are you going to, are you going to try to edit it? No, dude, this we're just at an hour. This is normal Mike podcast length. Um, So Andrew, how can they get in touch with you? Oh, Andrew's gone. We lost Andrew? him. Yeah, we did. I'll have to put his stuff in there. You were like, you were tapping out. Yeah, if anybody wants to get a hold of anybody, um, I, what is what is his email? I'll Andrew? put it, I'll put all his stuff in the show notes and I'll put yours as well. Yeah. Um, but I this is a topic I definitely want to come back to, and we can also come back to the martial arts one later too. But yeah, absolutely. Mike, thank you for doing this. Andrew, you're, you're not here, but thank you for doing this. <laughs> so it's his first podcast. He didn't yeah. know he didn't know yeah. when to tap out or not, you know. So us pros know that we're actually going to debrief this after you. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. See you, man. Catch you later.